So today is our second week in what's going to be a rather lengthy series called Building Your Abundant Life. We're going to be exploring Jesus's very famous, possibly the most famous and important and best sermon ever recorded in one sitting, very famously called the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we cheated a little bit and went to the very end. Because we're not going to hear the whole Sermon on the Mount in one sitting, like it is presented in the book of Matthew. We're going to dig in for quite a while, because it is absolutely comprehensive, beautiful, powerful, hits so many different spheres of life. It really is an all-encompassing worldview for life. But what we can miss, as we dig into each of those beautiful areas, is that at the end, which the hearers would have heard altogether... Jesus finishes with a very clear action plan. If you weren't here last Sunday or didn't get the chance to to, uh, hear it because you were outside or wherever, serving with the kids, strongly encourage you to listen to that message because it's so fascinating that Jesus finishes with an absolutely crucial call for response. It's, It's chapter 7. Verse 24 to 27, he says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like one who builds their life on the rock. And essentially the essence of it is Jesus is calling you to take responsibility to build your life. Quite shockingly, at the end, those the nouns, pronouns, and verbs of he is the one, who hear, the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is the one who builds their house on a rock. Absolutely counterculturally, Jesus is not talking to a group. It's all in the individual. It's all in the singular. That transformed the world. The entire Western civilization is built on this idea of a personal relationship with God. That each and every single one of us are accountable to stand before God to give an account of our life. How did we steward life? And Jesus sets that foundation as he says, you build your life on the rock. And yes, is God involved? Yes, God is the hero. (laughs) God, it's all about God. It's very God-centered. But not even God can make you build your life on the rock. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said that. You build your life on the rock. And so last week is all about this framework as we hear every week this different aspect of a vision for life. There's an unbelievably holy privilege and responsibility that we have to steward our own lives. No one else can. And to say, today, I'm going to hear the word of the Lord, and I'm going to put it into practice. I choose to build my life on the rock. Because here's the reality. You're building it on something. And so that's the beauty of Jesus' invitation. Build it on him. So as we go through every week, we have to keep that in mind, that there is a 
holy privilege and responsibility that only you can respond to for your life. No one else can build it for you, not even God. You have to build your life on the rock. That was God's grace in and through, and yes, 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 yes. But to take that personal responsibility seriously that Jesus says, you build your life on the rock. So with that in mind, now let's go back to the beginning. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, dot, 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 and here it comes. But let's pause. Sometimes seeing the context of something can help you appreciate all the more what's going on. And I would submit to you that this moment right here and the forthcoming Sermon on the Mount is nothing short of a creation event. Jesus is about and intending to create in the minds and the hearts of those who are willing to hear him and put it into practice, as he'll ultimately say, a vision for life, the vision for life. And I don't use that word creation lightly. I really believe this is a parallel of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the good created order into existence. He spoke it. The word of God creates. That's the biblical picture. Fast forward however many millennia to Jesus opening his mouth and saying, not coincidentally, Jesus is the incarnate, in the flesh, word of God, right? We learn that from John chapter 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he incarnated, he became incarnate, meaning took on flesh. He became one of us. So Jesus is the word of God. That becomes a name. He is the, the logos of God. That's the Greek word. So just as God opened his mouth at the beginning of time and used logos, or the word, to create the world, guess what that word is there in the Greek where it says Jesus opened his mouth, taught them, saying, it's the word logos. So there's some parallels here. Just as God opened his mouth at the beginning of time and used logos to create the world, so too Jesus, the incarnate logos of God, is opening his mouth, essentially in the way Matthew sets it up, as the first time ever, and he is using logos to create a vision for life that would unite heaven and earth. So I believe it is very much a creative act here. This is a, a creation going on that Jesus is putting forth. The way that, and, and really what is being created is what Jesus calls 
the kingdom of heaven. And we get to participate in that. The way the author of Matthew sets this up is very cool. Not coincidentally, this vision for life comes very early in the book of Matthew. It's the first teaching that Jesus does. Before that, what we have is a, you could say, somewhat brief narrative of his divine lineage, his divine birth, his baptism, showing Jesus' divine identity, his temptation in the desert, showing Jesus' divine authority, so to speak. And then he begins his ministry. And we pick that up in 417, where it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he, Jesus begins to go around declaring the logos, the creative word, that the kingdom of heaven is near, it's within reach, it's right here. This kingdom of heaven, what does he even mean by that? We don't yet know if we're following in the narrative of Matthew. All we know is that it's the essential idea, it's the summary of what Jesus preaches about. This is confirmed a few verses later when he sum- or Matthew summarizes Jesus' early ministry in chapter 4, verse 23, like this. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As many of you know, the word gospel is the same word as good news. It's where we get the word evangelist, euangelion. It looks like evangelist in in the Greek. It means good news. So Matthew is saying that the summary of Jesus' good news, his gospel message is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. That's how Matthew encapsulates everything Jesus went about teaching and preaching. So what is it? What is this kingdom of heaven? And Matthew, it's kind of like he's whetting our appetite and saying, here it comes. We're about to find out. Because then Jesus opens his mouth, teaching, saying, that using these logos words, Jesus is going to lay out a comprehensive vision for life that is intended to create the good order of heaven in your life. And that's where, to me, it has such this, wow, this is a a creation event. Just in the same way, at the beginning of time, God created a good order with the words that proceeded from his mouth. So Jesus is gonna use the, the logos to set forth and create in us this good order of the kingdom of heaven coming in and transforming, in a sense, recreating in our lives. To take all of the the pain, the hurt, the brokenness, the suffering of this world and, and, and see heaven redeem, recreate, restore. We use all that language. That's, that's creation type language. And, and so I think there's a, there's a 
power that comes when we see what Jesus is doing. He is wanting to create heaven's life in our life. And if we can have the ears to hear and then the the courage to put it into practice and build on those things, heaven will, will be experienced, will be created, if you will. In our life right now, we'll see it happen. We'll see our lives transformed. Jesus has a vision for abundant life of the kingdom of heaven that is meant to be encountered now and continue all the way up into eternity. And so that's what this message of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be all about. A vision for life. A comprehensive vision for life. And it begs a question for us as we dive into it. What is our vision for life? Does it line up with Jesus's? Is it in some ways unintentionally probably, opposed to Jesus's vision. It's really important to think deeply, honestly, humbly about this question. What is your vision for life? And does it match the vision that Jesus is gonna put forward? The, The stakes are high. As we looked at at the beginning of the year, a great proverb that just speaks a fundamental human truth, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, people perish. I mean, that's fundamentally true. Going back to that individual, personal level, if you don't have a compelling vision for your life, you are dying. You can feel it. We take, for example, kind of the the edges of despair and depression, people that are paralyzed to just move forward towards something better, better, maybe not even just being able to get out of bed. And we all probably, we all have those days at times in certain measure. What's lacking? Hopeful, inspiring, compelling vision. Because if you have it, the, the soul comes alive. It puts wind in your sails. And even if we don't necessarily, and we really never ultimately do, accomplish the fullness of the vision, this vision Jesus talks about is a lifelong journey, a many decades long process, but having compelling vision is so much better than having no vision. (laughs) Compelling vision is life. It brings life It puts life in you. That's what inspired means. If you ever look at that kind of word, Latin word, inspired means like inspirited, inspired. It puts spirit in you, like life. I got spirit today, like a wild horse, spirited. Vision will do that. But conversely, bad vision or no vision, is there spirit in you? feels like the life has been sucked out of you. And that's where Jesus is taking us. That's where he's pointing. If you're aiming at unclear or bad vision or have no vision, 
All of it adds up to these consequences that Jesus said at the very end in Matthew 7, 27, which we looked at last week, which your life will end with a fall and it will be a great crash. Why? Lack of vision. Lack of kingdom-minded vision that you hear and respond to. And so I assume that you're like me. You do not want your life to end with a great crash. You don't. And that's healthy. (laughs) It's a bad place to be if you just don't even care anymore. So Jesus is appealing to that good, healthy, God-given sense. You want an abundant life. You do not want your life to end with a crash. You want to build your life on something that is a rock so that when the storms of life come, and they will, you have the strength to endure them and you're still standing and you're thriving. They didn't take you out to where you crash. Jesus says, that's all good, but your vision is everything in that. If you don't have the vision for life and you're aiming at stuff that is ultimately sand, you'll know it because you can feel it when things are hard. What's beneath you? Are you crashing? Maybe a little crash, mini crash? So Jesus says the stakes are high. And that's why he starts this sermon with this, I believe, picture of creation where he says, let me create for you a vision of heaven transforming your life. As we get into this, part of what we see is I think there's a, a, there's a fair question. Well, let me back up and just say, from a very personal and practical level, I think it is very fair for us as we read through these words and, and meditate on them and explore them to ask the honest question of, is there a better vision for life that can be found? than what Jesus is putting forward. I don't think that's an unfair question. I don't think that's an offensive question to Jesus. Can we find anything better than this vision for life? You owe it to yourself to find the absolute greatest, purest, truest, realest vision for your life. I think Jesus would encourage you to think hard and deep about what he's putting forward and contrast it with other messages coming your way. And if you were to build your life on those, how does it end? And to learn how to put up our radar, hear Jesus's vision, and then hear the contrasting visions that, that say take the same topic of life and then take another approach. Build on something else and, and think deeply through. Like, for example, today, a lot of people are probably gonna watch the Super Bowl, right? Every single commercial is a vision for the good life. In some way, you are being sold a message that says this is what you need to have a better life. That's the whole point of advertising. It's it's euangelion. It is sharing of good news to get you to say yes 
So our life is constantly filled with messages coming our way. And I believe it's really important to know the vision of Jesus, know the, his manifesto for life, his vision of the kingdom of heaven that the Sermon on the Mount gives us, and then be able to know that so well as it comes up different topics of life that we're able to compare and contrast his vision with what we're being sold every day and really put it to the test. If I build my life on this, what's going to be the result? And I believe Jesus would be very confident to say, test it out, because I think he's confident that he knows his vision is the vision for life. But test it out in the sense of like, we, we don't take half-heartedly his words as like, yeah, maybe something. No, it's like this is, life is on the line. I mean, for example, he's going to put forth a vision that says things like, why live in resentment and bitterness, which is something we're being sold every day. We have entire political systems being built on resentment and bitterness and being told that this is the way. So Jesus would say, okay, think about that, test that out. Why live on resentment and bitterness when in the kingdom vision, you can become the person that has the power to love, forgive, and even bless your enemies? Which one's a better way of living? Or why live in whimsical lusts, which is the essence of every advertisement, it's food, it's sex, it's power, it's prestige, it's reputation. It's never, hey, consider this in, in wise, patient, you know, moderation. It's go out and buy this right now. It's, it's whimsical, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? Uh, dang it. When you want something now and you just go after it, what's the word? Come on, synonym helpers. What? Instant gratification. Instant gratification. That's good. Petulant. <laughs> you guys are getting it. It's not the word I'm looking for. Uh, impulsive. There we go. Impulsive. Praise Jesus. <laughs> we are taught messages every day to follow your impulsive lusts. Impulsive desires. I was in the grocery store yesterday. I took a, not yesterday, a couple of days ago. Took a picture, circled it, sent it to my wife. It was strolling through the bakery section. You know, it's, as I walk through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, <laughs> please, Lord, help me. Krispy Kreme donuts. They don't even have them in the store. They bring them to you. Gosh, darn it. But literally in this, this, this altar, this tower of Babel, this altar that is seriously a pyramid high of all these freshly baked goodies. They're going to kill me. It says right in the middle, there's a little sign. And, and it says, treat yourself. You deserve it. And I took a picture and I circled it. And, and I showed it to my wife. As I'm eating a donut, I sent it to her. Just kidding. I refrained until after the picture. And, but I'm like, there it is. 
I'm being sold good news that is telling me just don't think about anything else. Just follow impulsive desire. I, in fact, I deserve it. It is the good life that I deserve. I mean, that is a wild word. Deserve. Like, it's, it's my right? I mean, you think, I mean, what is it saying to you? You deserve it. This is a, it is your fundamental right to just overload your body with so much sugar, you, you, you lose your mind for a little bit. It is my God-given right. I mean, it's interesting to think through, right? I'm saying, this is the kind of stuff, if you see me in the grocery store, this is what's going through my mind. <laughs> I'm thinking deeply right now about the worldview that is punching me in the face with temptation opposed to Jesus's abundant life. And I'm not saying to never have a cookie in your life. I'm not saying that. But if there's, it's the, a message that Jesus will go after is being controlled by impulsive lusts. He, go ask, he goes after that. When you can, by God's grace, have the power to rise above with purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then he gives some examples of things that seem wild to be able to overcome. But he says, well, <laughs> I've got kingdom vision. I want to create a new reality in you that you didn't think was possible. Or why live with an orphan mindset? Jesus is going to go after. Feeling abandoned and alone in the world. Now, that's, that's, that's a worldview. If you're carrying that, it, it's most likely not your doing. That is not God's heart for you. That is the broken world that has left many feeling abandoned, worthless or worth little. And Jesus is going to address that worldview, vision for life, in some unspeakably beautiful ways where he talks about a God who is a perfect heavenly parent, a perfect heavenly father who desires to be personal, personal and powerful and present in your life in your individual life, not just in a group, but to you. This is where it becomes unbelievably beautiful that Jesus is speaking to not only the group, but the individual when he calls us to a response so that we can take personally things when he says, like, even a sparrow falls to the ground, even when a sparrow falls to the ground, your heavenly Father knows about it, but how much more valuable are you? So God will take care of you. That is a creative vision to build your life on.
So on and on, we're going to go through these unbelievably beautiful things, but all of them have a real contrast to them. The kingdom vision for life is not what we're going to hear in our broken, fallen, lost world. So I think part of being able to live into the fullness of the vision Jesus has is to really contrast them. And as we hear the vision for life that Jesus brings, this kingdom vision where he wants to create more of heaven on earth in your life, that we also have to contrast that with the opposing vision that we're living in or being taught and fight against it and be able to say no to the world and yes to Jesus over and over again. And as we do that, we are building our life on the rock. We are building our life on the heavenly vision that Jesus has. I want to close with two examples of Jesus' followers and how, as real people, Jesus' vision for life transformed them. Because that's very important. If Jesus' vision for life is the best, you're going to see that in those who follow him genuinely. You're going to see the good fruit. As Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. So let's think about Peter for a moment. In his own strength, his vision for life, he was abrasive. I'm not going to go into all the scriptures on this. I have before, and this would be a fun little Bible study if you're interested, but just for time's sake, Trust me, every word I say is based on a Bible verse that we learn about from Peter. He is abrasive. He's arrogant. He's impulsive. He's foolish. He's self-righteous. He's obnoxious. Praise God, there's good news for all of us who are like him. He made ridiculous promises he couldn't keep. He threw his friends under the bus to promote himself. He even rebuked Jesus, assuming he knew better than Jesus did about God's plans. He tried to chop someone's head off in impulsive zeal. Luckily for that guy, he wasn't a real great shot and just lopped off his ear. His foibles are well documented. Just read any of the Gospels, which on a side note, I personally believe that lends to the credibility of the text in wonderful measure. Because of the sins of the heroes, so to speak, are clearly displayed. The Bible does not try to hide and pretend that everybody has it all together. But fast forward a few decades of Peter building his life on Jesus' creative vision for the kingdom of heaven to transform a life. And you have a different person, a transformed person, saying things and living things out like he says in 2 Peter, 
1, 3 to 4. We looked at it pretty extensively a couple weeks ago. So just a quick summary. Peter says this, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly, which break that down, God-like life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. (laughs) Hello. Having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. In other words, or in summary, and there's this whole chapter, this whole passage after that, that, that is very connected, but for brevity's sake, Peter's own story about this creative, heavenly vision for life that he has picked up from Jesus, which is wonderfully encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount, is this, that God has given him the power to grow in virtue and character to become like God through knowing God. It's right there in the passage. Through his great and precious promises so that you may participate participate in the divine nature. We have everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, through knowing him. Knowing is the key, which we will absolutely see in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, a breathtaking passage where Jesus talks about the sad reality of you can do all these things, but if I never knew you, you missed the whole point. So we'll get to the essence of the vision is knowing God. And what happens? Nothing short of a character transformation that even if you're as messed up as Peter, you can grow and grow and grow, participate in the divine nature and have everything you need for a godly life. (laughs) I mean, it's like, can you possibly think of a higher vision than knowing God and being transformed in your character to be like him? And let's make sure this knowing piece is is understood. When Peter talks about knowing, when Jesus talks about knowing, when Paul talks about knowing, it is not simply the comprehension of cognitive information, although that is key and part of it. Knowing in the biblical sense includes experiential knowledge, or knowledge is experiential. Way back in Genesis, we see this idea when it says in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve. And the result was she conceived and bore a son. Now, I don't mean in any way to be crude. I mean to be very literal. The, this, he did not know simply cognitive information about her. There was an experiential knowing. And that is the thread of the entire Bible. That knowing is experiential when it comes to God. That's why there's all these Pictures, in a way, metaphors of, have you seen God? Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Have you 
heard from the Lord? Has God touched you? All these sensory experiences. Because God is meant to be experienced, not just thought about. Now, we need to have our right thinking about who God is, but that's a huge part of it, but it never stops there in the biblical picture of knowing. It is a relational encounter. And so Peter is saying, and Paul is saying, and ultimately Jesus is saying that the vision for life, the very essence of it is that you are made for relational encounter with God. Knowing God is the essence of life. Jesus says it otherwhere, other places, John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. That's John 17, 3. And so this knowing God that leads to or brings character transformation to be like God, that's the essence of the vision for life that Peter picked up. Paul picks up the exact same thing. Super quick. It's one of our favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So the spiritual veil is removed. So we're not just learning information about God. There is a spiritual connection where we're seeing God. That's a sensory picture of this relational, experiential encounter, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, through that, what happens? We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another in the same image. We are being transformed, actually, this is better, we are being transformed into the same image of Christ that we're beholding from one degree of glory to another. So there's, in different language, the exact same vision for life, to know God and through that be transformed in your character, to be like him, is the vision for life that his followers pick up. It's the whole rest of the New Testament. It's the exact same thing that Jesus preaches. That's why it's all about knowing God. But then he's going to put forth some things that are unbelievably high in their aim. Like something like, you have heard it was said that you shall not look upon a woman with a, with a, with a lustful thought. Or you know, what is it? Sorry. I haven't, you know, I haven't read it yet. i got to get there. <laughs> Shall not commit adultery, but I say if you look upon a woman with a lustful thought, you've already committed adultery. Now, you can either look at that and say that is impossible, and thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me, which is good and part of it, but I will tell you with 100% confidence that's not why Jesus is saying that. He is saying that because he is confident that as you get to know him, that can become your actual life. Your character can be transformed to be like him. 
That's why he's going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He actually means it. It's gonna get crazy up in here. He actually means it. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is built on this foundation of not on your strength, so don't worry about it. But as you get to know God, as you encounter God, the result will be you will become increasingly transformed in your character to be like him. And yes, there's grace covering us for the whole journey, but don't aim low. Aim high. That's what Jesus is going to say. Aim high as you, can, as you can possibly imagine that you get to, your life's purpose is to know God and then by his grace and power and your obedience response to become increasingly like him in your character. And that's the vision that's meant to pull you forward for the rest of your life until the day you die, when you go in glory, and then it gets completed. So that's where we're going. Let's pray. <laughs> he um when he mentioned that verse in genesis adam knew eve that uh, that actual word knew is the same as the other verses he was talking about and i want to give us another verse that uses that same know what do you know what the hebrew is what the actual word is well, we forgot what the actual word is <laughs> in Hebrew. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So that word acknowledge is the same word in Genesis that means to know him. So what is that saying? So he will make your paths straight if you, in all your ways, acknowledge him. That's not just like a passive, oh yeah, God, you know, help me out with this. The level of knowing and intimacy where Adam and Eve are one flesh, their spirits are connected. They are united this is where the power comes to live out all of these seemingly impossible things that Jesus is putting forth in the Sermon on the Mount for how we're supposed to walk and be transformed into his image. It's, it's a deep, constantly connected communion that is regularly acknowledging our weakness and need for more of him. If we're just pretending that we don't have any problems, we will literally never experience resurrection life. And I don't even know what the point of the gospel or the cross was if we're going to live in denial that we have things going on and we're fine. We need his power. And as we know him as we acknowledge him in all of our ways, God, I need you. I need more of you. I need to encounter you in this way. Wow, my character really falls short. I don't like that I'm so scared. I don't like that I get angry. Whatever it is, welcome him in and know him at the intimacy level that we, the, the highest level of intimacy on earth 
emotional and spiritual intimacy is that union of Adam and Eve knowing. And yet this is a tiny sliver of the knowing that God wants for us and him. And the word is the same. So. Dance like David